Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Angeles, California. Welcome to the Paranormal and the Sacred Radio Show with your host, Shaw McCain. Hello, everyone. I'm your host, Shaw McCain, and I'd like to welcome listeners to the Paranormal and the Sacred Radio Show. My show was created to provide an open minded platform that welcomes the gifted and extraordinary thinkers from every walk of life and circumstance. Please follow the Paranormal and the Sacred on Facebook for upcoming events and special speakers from around the world. And we are translated into many different languages for our listeners outside of the country. The call-in number tonight is 619-924-9744. During the show, you can ask questions and, and order, <clears throat> answer questions in order in chat. And you may call in with your questions to speak with our guests tonight. Any buzzkillers in chat or on the phone will be politely kicked out and have a copy of your stuff. So just please leave us alone and play nice. Uh, I have a few announcements to make tonight before we welcome our special guests on. Marilyn Salas, since she has a healing healing energy at Nutmeg's Ohio House, Ohio House, Mondays with Marilyn is the title, and stress, aches and pains, headaches, grief, heartaches, for mind, spiritual, and body healing less, uh, sessions, uh, schedule an appointment from 12 o'clock to 5 p.m., and she said Marlins are more than welcome. This is Robert Salas' wife, and she's a pretty awesome woman, and she has 22 years of healing energy experience, and the phone number there is 805-640-1656. You can view one of her videos at www.lovesblessing.com slash energy dash healing dot htm. And December 13th is a serial annual holiday party aboard the haunted Queen Mary in Long Beach. It starts at 7 p.m., a bunch of us are there every year. I think last year it was 45. It gets bigger every year. But also the ticket got bigger. It's 60 bucks this year. And just save your money till December. And it is uh, December 13th. Starts at 7. Bring a gift for the gift exchange. If you bring one, you get one. And Mufon is also having a thing um, up in Burbank on the 4th. So it's October 4th. The fourth, and I don't have the address, so I'm gonna have to give it to you on Sunday. And I want to let's see if I have any more announcements. I think uh, that's just about it. Next week we're going to have um, Paul Leslie, activist, universalist, and any abductor survivor. He's going to be on uh, Friday, and then uh, the Friday after, Dr. Raymond Moody is going to come and speak about his last book, The Paranormal and My Life in the Paranormal and Near Death Experiences. 
And now we have uh, waiting for us in the queue is Chad and Alta Dillard that met and married in the early 90s in the city of Little Rock, Arkansas. The marriage was one of destiny and, as Alta would say, arranged. And what they did not know was that from the moment the couple would have taken a journey to the world of the unknown and high strangeness, Chad and Alta married um, in the early 90s in the city of Little Rock, as I just said, and the marriage was one of destiny. Anyway, from aliens to ghosts to shapeshifters and a journey of the world unknown and actual high strangeness. And they're here tonight to speak with us, and we're so, so excited to have them on. And I'd like to welcome Chad and Alta. Welcome to the Paranormal and the Sacred. You're live. Thanks for having us. Thank you so much for having Hi there. Hi, you guys. I've been just so excited and waiting all week and visiting your site on and off and um, looking at the beautiful shawls that you make and sell. And um, I'm really, really, really excited to have you on the show tonight. I'm a little tongue-tied tonight, so uh, I don't know what happened to me. Uh, I think so, that's going around. I'm recovering from this, uh, I think, this infection that strikes lungs that I'm hearing about a lot in the news I got hit with this last week, so I'm a bit bored. Oh, okay. I, I just take care of yourself. You know, that's going around, and some of it's very serious, so I just hope we're all taking our little herbs and everything else to stay well. Right. I, I've kept myself quarantined, and I'm on the healing end of it. And again, we're just so honored that you're having us. Thank you again. Oh, thank you so much. So, you know, you have such an interesting story, so I would like to hear from each of you. Uh, where were you born? Where were you brought up? And then ultimately, where did you meet? And uh, I guess ladies first. Well, thank you. Chad's pointing at me also, so you can okay, take her right. <laughs> Go ahead. You, I, I am 10 years older than Chad, so maybe age again before beauty or what have you. Um, I'm from originally, I'm, I'm sorry? No, go ahead. I'm just talking. Go ahead, Miss. Uh, I, I'm, a, I'm originally from Arizona. Um, just kind of the short story, I really don't have a lot of information about my early beginnings in life other than what my mother has told me. My mother has since passed on, so many things that have happened to Chad and I, I've not had her to reflect back on asking questions, but I'm told that I'm from a reservation of mixed native blood in Arizona, and uh, my mother claimed that when I was about six months old, she I'm raised an only child, she left the area with me and my father and his people, um, and just somewhat disappeared. There's a lot of mystery to my early beginnings, and, um, you know, it could probably take days trying to explain and understand that deeper, but um, there's just much of it that I cannot answer. I never questioned my mom growing up. Um, She was a woman of presence and a self-made woman, and She just had an awful lot of secrets and a lot of mystery in her past. One thing I will point out is that uh, that I feel is important to what has been happening with Chad and I is that she claimed to a few people that she trusted, and there weren't many uh, throughout our lives, that when I was six months old, she claims that she was driving across the desert 
I have no idea what desert she's speaking about, but she says that um, it was only her and myself as passenger in the car, and she says that it was during daylight. Sometimes she would use the word UFO. Sometimes she would use the words metallic craft. She says, came down out of the sky and literally stopped her on the road. Now, as mysterious as that sounds, Again, I apologize that I don't have any more information about that, but it does seem to, in a weird way, make some kind of strange sense to what has since happened to Chad and I in the last 24 years. Um, Again, my mother was never questioned. People that she trusted to tell this to, I I don't remember her ever being challenged, Uh, and so I never did either. And uh, in in all honesty, I never had any interest uh, also in uh, UFOs. Uh, I wasn't even interested in science fiction of any kind um, and have never really watched any of the movies that are out about the subject, so forth. So, again, this, you know, I lack in a great deal of information, but just repeating again what I had heard throughout my life, and then um, I'll have Chad explain his early history. Okay, go ahead, Chad. I'm originally from Arkansas. Um, spent most of my childhood there, uh, fairly normal. Uh, uh, my parents uh, split up when I was seven. About uh, the only kind of really uh, out of the ordinary or high strangeness that I can remember is my, my dad was a farmer uh, there in the delta of Arkansas. And um, we had a a soybean field right outside our house. And I remember my dad and my grandfather and my uncle talking about these three burnt circles kind of out in the middle of this soybean field, kind of in between our our house and and the barn. Um, If I remember right, they were about 12, 14 foot in diameter, 15 foot in diameter, perfect round burnt circles, just boom, 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 right there in a row. Um, that's that's really the only thing that uh, I can remember of, of high strangeness. Uh, my childhood was fairly normal besides that. Uh, I also well, add, I'm born, I'm born in 1957, Arizona, and Chad is... 10 years younger than I am to give everyone a perspective of age. Well, that that just seems to be just right to me. <laughs> I, I totally agree. Thank you. Because, <laughs> you know, women outlive men, so she's going to outlive you anyway, Chad. Uh, yeah. Well, I'm, uh, she already calls me the old man anyway. <laughs> yeah, that's okay. So, um... So you guys uh, ultimately meant, um, now where did you meet, and uh, tell us that that whole story. Well, we met in uh, Arkansas, in Little Rock, in 91, 1990, I'm sorry. Um, He is getting old. I am getting old. And I am the man. I I don't even know the date. Anyway, uh, it was kind of a strange uh, coincidence uh, or kind of 
a friend of mine had called me up. This was uh, Valentine's Day. Uh, he he knew that I kind of liked older women, and I was 23 at the time. So he called me up and wanted to know if I was dating anybody, and it was Valentine's Day and wanted to do a double date. He described this uh, this lady that he was working with, and she, um, you know, she... So, anyway, I kind of let Alta go into this. I'll pick it up for you. Uh, at the time, I'm 33, never married, no children. I had, because I had so much mystery in my past with no answers, in all honesty, I never intended to marry and to this day still have no children. Um David was the guy's name that I was working with. I had I was new on the job. I very much disliked this new job and uh, was just having a really bad day. He made this phone call with me standing in front of him. I'd never had a blind date before either and wasn't particularly interested, but I was curious. As I'm being described to Chad, I could tell that Chad was interested, but the short story is Chad claimed that he couldn't make the date because he had to work that night. He was at that time working in a, uh, an oyster bar. Chad has a restaurant background, chef background. Uh, now he's quite an entrepreneur and lots a renaissance man, but at, at the time that was pretty much his, his endeavors. Uh, when I discovered that I couldn't even at that point seem to get a blind date, that just made my day go worse. And as we said, it was Valentine's Day. I left work around 5-ish. I was staying with my mom. I had just moved back to Arkansas uh, within that year from California, actually. Uh, my mom had moved uh, to a new location, and she also was a, um, a housing inspector, premise inspector for the city of Little Rock. President Clinton was one of my mother's law professors when she started college at 40 to get a degree in law at 50. This is while wow. he was still attorney. Right. As I said, she was a self-made woman. Um, so anyhow, pointing that out to you is for the reason is is that I felt fairly safe. Everybody, it seemed, in the city knew who my mom was. She was also a, a mixed Indian woman who was considered a native elder. This would have been in the late 70s at the time when she moved to Arkansas and got involved in all these other endeavors. When uh, I came back from California, as I said, my mother had moved to a new neighborhood, and I was staying with her at the time, not real familiar with the area. I decided that um, I was going to do something unusual, which was go out and get it, have a drink by myself. I don't remember ever doing that before. Um, I got home, I changed my clothes, I got in my car, and again, I'm in a very foul mood, and I just keep prefacing that because that's just so acute in my memory um, that I just didn't want to be at home. I didn't want to be alone. And uh, so this is where the I've borrowed this term, but it applies to everything that I speak of in the sense of paranormal, UFO, what have you. I call it all high strangeness. To me, this is where the real high strangeness begins. Um, I chose an, a location, uh, I just got in my car, as soon as I changed my clothes, I started driving, 
not too far from where my mom lived, again, because of her position in the city, I stayed very, fairly close to her house. And there was a little pub that wasn't far from where she lived. This pub was someplace I'd never heard of before. I didn't know anything about it. It seemed odd to me that it was in this old residential neighborhood. Um, there wasn't a soul around. The parking lot was empty. It was a tiny place. I mean, when I say small, I mean small. It, it, uh, the parking lot could hold a couple of cars. There was no cars in the parking lot. It, by this time, it's probably somewhere between 5.30, 6 o'clock p.m. It's still light out and uh, actually bright out. Uh, sun's still somewhat shining. When I walked into this place, it looked uh, it looked old. It wasn't dirty, but it was it was just aged. It looked like some little Irish pub. Uh, it was only large enough to have a pool table in it. It had an old wooden bar, very small, with one or two bar stools, um, and there was not a soul in this place. I thought, well, great, you know, this isn't helping the mood much, but at least I'm, you know, someplace close to home. Around the corner came a woman who looked grandmotherly. What I mean by that is she was rosy-cheeked, short, white, curly hair, round and plump, friendly-looking, and just what the doctor ordered for me to feel safe, to do something that was so out of character, as in go to a bar by myself. She asked what I wanted to drink. I remember ordering a beer on tap. By the time she poured this beer and handed it to me at the bar, I don't even remember taking a drink out of this when the door opened up, the entrance. And just like something almost out of a movie, it seemed like the sun shined even brighter around these two gentlemen that walked in the door. These gentlemen were my ideal of perfection in terms of physical beauty when it came to men. One was very blonde, one was very dark-haired. They were immaculately dressed, uh, expensively dressed. One had on a expensive aviator leather jacket and expensive casual dress with expensive shoes. I used to sell clothing. I knew what that looked like when I saw it. They uh, struck up a conversation with me. What's very interesting to me about all of that is that I didn't have any interest in these men at all, um, other than taking note of how attractive they were. They looked, you know, as one would say, like male models, even more so. Um, they asked, one of them asked me if I wanted to play pool. We started playing pool, and what I discovered about these two was that the blonde gentleman claimed to be the private pilot for the dark-haired gentleman. So, you know, just in the essence of that short conversation, um, I'm immediately taking note of the fact that we're in an old residential neighborhood. That made no sense to me whatsoever. There was no airport, private or public, anywhere in that area or that vicinity. And I kept thinking, what in, you know, what in the world are these guys doing here? And that almost seemed to irritate me even more. It was like I'd lived in a life of mysteries that I didn't have a lot of answers for in my early childhood, 
And this just seemed to be more mystery that just wasn't making sense to me. Um, a little later on, I have no idea. Now, now we start talking about some missing time. I know that one of them asked me if there was any place livelier in the city to go to, which told me, obviously, that they weren't from there. So all that I can remember is indicating or thinking about a large sports bar that was somewhat in the center of the city of Little Rock. For whatever reason, I chose this location to share with these guys because, again, I knew it was in my mom's vicinity of where she was an inspector. I knew she knew everybody, and again, I was thinking safety, strangely enough. Now, the missing time part comes where I absolutely, keep in mind, I don't remember drinking that beer, and what I can say is that I have no memory at all of leaving that location and going to the next location with these gentlemen. But the next thing I know, I'm in this large sports bar with these two men or whatever or whoever they were. I had a girlfriend that I had worked with years prior that I knew lived fairly close to this location that was also single. I called her up. I asked her if she was interested in meeting these gorgeous men. She absolutely was. She was over there before I think I hung up the phone. She lived very close. That's the last I remember about those gentlemen. Again, my behavior is so out of character. I'm generally extremely friendly, unless one gives me reason not to be. I'm, you know, always engaged in conversation. I'm always interested in new people, but not on this night. So my behavior was totally out of character. The next thing I know... I'm leaving her with these men on one side of this sports bar, and as I told you, it's very large. I leave them, and I go to the other side of this bar by myself. I'm sitting up at the bar talking to the owner, who I knew knew my mom. I look very much now to this day, people say I look just like my mom. So everybody pretty much knew who I was. Uh the next thing I know, now I'm drinking, and I admit this, and I believe I started drinking fairly heavy, just in the foulest mood, trying to lighten my mood. Um, the next thing I'm aware of, I don't have any more memory of dealing with those men that I had originally come to this location with, nor my girlfriend that I had called to bring her to this location, but the next thing I know is uh, I'm looking down at the floor. I'm sitting up at a bar stool high off the floor up at the, you know, at the, at the counter where the owner was. Uh, the next thing I know is somebody is walking up to me and speaking to me, asking me if I want to play pinball. Well, I hate the game of pinball. And in my foul mood, as I'm staring down at the floor, I start with this person's feet, and I start with my eyes coming up their body and I'm about to let them have it in the rudest way just because somebody asked me to play pinball. It's terrible to admit all my bad behavior, but this is exactly the mood that I was in. But by the time I got to this person's face, it was sweet, it was friendly, pretty blue eyes, 
and a very beautiful smile that just kind of melted me. I remember walking over to the pinball machine and began playing pinball with this gentleman, and I'll have Chad pick it up from there. Well, okay. we had uh, we finished our first game, and uh, she looked at me and she goes, well, what's your name? And I said, Chad. And she said, do you know a guy named David? And I said, yeah. Did he call you today? Yeah. She goes, I'm Alta. I'm the one that you were supposed to go out with tonight. So it was <laughs> like we were a blind date that didn't happen that happened anyway. Great. So then... As I say, to me, other people have questioned my surprise about this and my reaction, but I just offer it up again as, you know, the beginnings of Chad and I, what I consider was arranged. My term is arranged. Mm-hmm. Uh, I I left with Chad. Um, I was having so much fun with him. I didn't want to part dramatically. He tells me that he's living with his mom or staying with his mom at the time. So he invited me to come over to their house. I didn't have any issue with that at all. We went to their house. His mom had a boyfriend. She was staying at his house for the night. Chad had told me it would just be us there at the house. We literally stayed up and drank and partied and listened to music and laughed all night long. The son comes up, his mom comes home, and, you know, we're in the den. She's come home to change her clothes. She works for doctors at the time. So she had to put on her uni, you know, to go to work. Chad yells, Mom, this is Alta. Alta, that's my mom. Called her by name. We just, you know, we waved at each other. She went off into the bathroom, bedroom to change her clothes, so on and so forth. In a short amount of time, she calls Chad into the room with her. Now I'm getting really uncomfortable because, of course, I hadn't dealt with a mom in many a years, you know, since high school. So I'm starting to get panicked about what in the world. Chad comes back out of the room after visiting with his mom for what felt too long to me and indicates to me that she had just shared something with Chad that he either never knew or had forgotten. I think he never knew this. And that was Chad? She's like, uh, she says, does Alta sound familiar? Does that name sound familiar to you? And I'm like, no. She said, that's your grandfather's name. She said, he went by George. Of course, I knew him as Papa. But he went by George because he thought uh, Alta was too feminine. And But that's your your grandfather's name. So I go back and and tell Alta, you know, hey, you know, I just found out that that's my grand. And my grandfather, when when my mom and dad divorced, they they divorced when I was seven. So, you know, I would spend a lot of times during the summer, if I wasn't with my dad, I was with my grandfather. Weekends a lot with my grandfather. You know, he was was really, uh, you know, a great influence in my life. Him and I were very, very close. And um, and then I come to find out, I tell Alta, his last name is Duncan. Uh, his name is Alta Duncan. And 
she goes, well, that's my mom's maiden name. So essentially, as you can hear Chad, his grandfather, who basically raised him or had a huge influence in his life, true name is Alta Duncan, which is essentially my name. Now, that's right. And it terrified me because one thing I neglected to mention is that I don't have any childhood memories until I'm around the age of nine, somewhere around the age of nine. My first memory, now I mean when I say I have none, I have none. I've got some school records that show when I'm starting school we're in California. But there is so much mystery in my past. There's no baby pictures of me. My photos don't start until I'm around two years old, actually two. It's as if, you know, I said it jokingly, seriously, it's as if I was hatched versus born. Um, And I was raised with no family. My mother had so much mystery in her past that I never knew any of my family uh, growing up at all. So now Chad is telling me that his grandfather is Alta Duncan, which is essentially me. I'm told I'm mixed Indian from a reservation area of Arizona with no family in Arkansas. And Chad, he's got a lot of family, but none of them are Indian from Arizona. So when Chad shares this with me about the name connection, I internally became, you know, my favorite word, and it is the truth. I became almost immobilized with fear. Uh, It ran through me like somebody had shot it in me. I became so afraid inside, as if somebody was out there pointing and laughing at me. Because it wasn't the first time that I had felt like I was being watched all my life. But it certainly was so compounded by this strange name connection that I let Chad on thinking that we'd see each other, you know, very soon after this initial date. But internally I was saying to myself, never again. He will never find me. I will disappear and he'll never know me. And uh, in all honesty, it took three months for us to be reunited after that first initial blind date that ended up happening, didn't happen, kind of craziness. So that was essentially the beginning. If I might add, I'm sorry I'm jumping around a bit, I feel it's essential, though, again, to the rest of our story that we have shared publicly before, is that those first memories that I have at around nine, we lived in Aurora, Colorado. My literal first memory is as if I had uh, had a consciousness pop into me. I'm sitting in a lab of a hospital. It happened to be a military hospital called Fitzsimmons. Military Hospital in Aurora, Colorado. I was being tested for ESP. Now, I have no idea why, how it was set up, or anything about it. In fact, it was, I feel so traumatizing that I had blanked that out for many years of my life. But my mom 
again, when she trusted somebody, would tell people that I was born um, in the native people that I come from, there are a portion of our people that are called the dreamers. They were Mm -hmm. so prophetically powerful back in the day in the 1800s that they were banned by the government. My mother claims that I had those abilities, that I was prophetically dreaming as a little one and speaking about very adult subjects, so on and so forth. So, you know, that's all that I really understand, but my first memory is being tested for ESP in this military hospital in Aurora, Colorado. Do you remember any of the results, or if your was your mother there with you? I have no memory of my mom being there. Oh, I'm sorry. No, I have no memory of my mother being there. All that I remember is being in an environment with people who looked like doctors in long white lab coats, sitting at a table, uh, being tested with cards with symbols on them. No, I'm sorry. I, I have no... Um, any, I have no more information than what I'm able to offer to you right now about all of that. I will also mention Grant Cameron has been kind enough to send me a message recently uh, indicating that he feels that I have really um, no resources, that I'll have no way of ever getting any information on, as he calls these, black projects. I have tried every way that I possibly can to get help and to no avail. And Mr. Cameron was, as I said, just kind enough recently to send me an email indicating that he didn't feel that I would be able to ever get those answers. I believe you're going to get the answers, but it may not be in this life. Right. It it may be in your next one or or whatever, because there's so many strange things going on. But to me, what you're talking about is more like reality to have a piece of a puzzle and that's all you remember. That sounds real valid to me. You know, because if you, you remember Thank every, you so much, yeah, if you, yeah, yeah, because uh, that's how memories are, especially in childhood. You're going to remember a vivid piece, but you're not going to know how you got there, or where you left, what happened after that. You may have another two years missing. But it sounds like they call it, what do they call them, the M labs, or the people that are military, followed by the military, and tested all the time. That's what it sounds like to me. Right. You know, it's interesting because neither Chad nor I, to the best of my knowledge, and Chad certainly knows his family history, have anybody involved in military in any way. But again, you know, what keeps me pursuing and us being public is we've had to become our own advocates with what's happening with us because I have tried everything to the point of this side of harassment to get help and it's to no avail. We've no. been left basically he on was, our own. Yeah, he was kind of so, right. You know, he was just out here in California, and he's a great guy. I've interviewed him a couple times. You know, he's the real deal, too. And uh, I think that maybe there is going to be some disclosure, but it's coming up so slowly. You know, I hope it comes up, because I'm an experiencer, too, and abductee, and had many similar experiences, even with the lab coats and the whole bit. Right. Right. Again, just, you know, doing our very best to point out these pieces of the puzzle that we've been left with 
And, um, you know, if we may, we'll move us now to, this was in 1990 when, again, in my estimation, arranged. Um, and nothing will sideline me from that understanding because of the strange circumstances and so on and so forth about our lives and how we were brought together. We then, uh, we married in 1991 uh, up north. And then we moved to Hammond, Louisiana. Excuse me, the Hammond, Louisiana area, which is a guesstimate of about an hour or so outside of New Orleans. Uh, in 1995, uh, at the very end, I think, of 94, we're into 95 now, when we had our first encounter. And I'll have Chad describe to you, uh, you know, what happened to us that basically started the process of, as I, my explanation is, we no longer had the luxury to stay asleep. Well, we were going into town. We were going into town uh, for dinner uh, for the evening. Um, it hadn't gotten dark yet. It was, uh, you know, fairly early. Um, we came around this group of trees, and back behind this group of trees in this kind of bend in the road was the local Walmart uh, shopping center. And we get around this group of trees, and Alta and I kind of, both look up at the same time, and there's this craft in the sky, and it just—it was—it was—it was huge. It was bigger than the Walmart, the shopping center, the parking lot, all combined. It was just it was bigger than that. It seemed very low to the ground. I would say below cloud level. Um, it was like we we looked up at it. She kind of looked at me. I looked at her. And without communicating or talking to each other, we just kind of both focused, you know, right back on the on on the road. Like, okay, pretend like you don't see that. If we don't acknowledge it, if we don't see it, it won't see us. Thing as far as its shape, it was it was very. We, you know, we only saw it from underneath. Uh, it was kind of a rectangle, but not as wide in the front as it was in the back, moving very slow. I mean, it was almost like it would fall out of the sky. Just so slow. Just uh, two or three lights in the front, three or four lights in the back, and like I said, it was like, okay... Pretend like you don't see that, and we went on to to dinner. We never spoke about it. We we never talked about it. It was like it. It never was a happened. non-event. I became my reaction was literally shock. That's the only way I know how to describe it. It was so big, and. Whatever was going on inside of me would not allow me to look at it. I can't even describe it to you because I turned my head instantly. Chad makes it sound almost a, a bit more relaxed than the way that I truly was inside. I was 
I was in such shock that it didn't happen. It was it was a non-event. I was staring at Chad while he's driving because he's taking it in, and then he has to focus back on the road. But, I mean, I turned my head so fast towards him, and I'm looking away at him. Away from it? I'm sorry? Like away from looking at it and looking at him? Right. Right, instantly away from it, looking only at Chad. With, I can feel it, even describing it to you now, pleading with him silently. I never said it, but I was pleading with him telepathically to tell me that that wasn't there. Well, he couldn't because it was there. So, you know, he took, a, he took another moment where he can to this day somewhat describe what he was able to see, but I couldn't tell you anything. And as he said, we never spoke about it. We went on and had our evening, but the next day, either in the paper or on the radio, I'm Chad and I are in disagreement about this. He thinks it was the paper. I can't find a write-up in the paper. I remember hearing it on the radio that others saw it and called it in. So, again, as much in denial as I was or we were, I'll only speak for myself, others had witnessed this as well. But even then, after hearing this, we still never spoke about it. But I'd like to point out, I've done a little research. Again? Excuse me, I'll tell you. What was this? 90 what? 95? Oh, 1995. Okay, they were asking in chat right. what year was this. And can you please describe the the uh, ship again? Was there sound? Was it big? Uh, could you tell us a little bit more about what it looked like? Yeah, uh, no sound that I that I can recall. I never saw anybody like running off the road or anybody, you know, else out on the road acknowledging it. I, you know, it was totally like. It was just Alton and I. Uh, but, like I said, it was rectangle, you know, uh, black. It was rectangle, but it wasn't as wide in the front as it was. Almost like an obelisk, kind of, but not pointed. Mm-hmm. You know, not the... No. Um, two or three lights in the front, two or three lights in the back. Flat. Um moving very, very slow, no sound, total blackness, below cloud level. Below cloud level. Um, and it, it was just, it was crazy. And massive. Yeah, massive. Just, I mean, battleship size, massive. I'd also like to point out, I've just done some research recently, because um, I've just tried like crazy to get some kind of you know, of others who called this in or whatever they did, it, the other witnesses, and I can find nothing. But I have discovered that as far back as the 40s, 1940s, there have been craft UFOs, is how it's being reported, sighted in Hammond, Louisiana. So there's clearly some history there. Yeah, that's so interesting. You know, I had Steve Allen from the Texas, uh, Stephenville Lights in Texas uh, last week. He described the same exact 
uh, craft that you're talking about. But he said it was as big as a football field. Yeah, yeah. It's just huge. And uh, another thing, now this happened to us in 95. In 2000, my dad and my stepmother go down to Cancun, Mexico, for the uh, millennium. They're going to go down to celebrate uh, the New Year with uh, another couple that they were friends that they're friends with. So they get down there. They get set up out on the beach to watch the uh, fireworks. Well, the lights from the hotel and and all were just really interfering with the the fireworks for them. So they decided to kind of move up the cove and. They said they take their chairs and they set up, and they set up below this temple of the Puma. They said they get their chairs set up, they sit down, and they hear this loud cat scream. So here they are under this temple of the Puma, loud cat scream. So this has kind of got them on high alert kind of thing. They said they focus their attention to the fireworks, and they said as they... um, now, this is my stepmother talking about this. She said, as the fireworks are going off, they start noticing this craft in the sky. And when I described to her this craft, she said it, it sounded exactly what they saw in Cancun. Now, we wow. get to see ours above Walmart. They get to see theirs above the Temple of the Puma. But, you know, just not very fair, but... And also, these people, chance people, uh, will not discuss these subjects at all. It's, you know, remarkable that it was ever even shared with us because it's not something, we're not close at all, and even if we were, this is not a subject. Nothing paranormal will they talk about. So that's Mm. as close, that's as far as we can get with that one. So they're not talking about it yet. They may be experiencing it all. Well, right. You know, we've discovered since then that we'll share with time, you know, if time allotted, further down into our story of more connections. Another hour. Another, you know, more connections with his father in particular, seeming to share some very interesting paranormal with us. But it's not something that they will discuss at all. So, well, you know, that generation was taught to be quiet. But go ahead, go ahead, Alistair. Go ahead. I was just going to move us along, but we love questions. Yes, go ahead. Mr. McCain, go ahead. we love questions. So, you know, we don't get asked enough questions. It's very helpful for Chad and I to try to have memory with people yes. questioning us. So, uh, anyhow, we leave the area of Hammond not long after this happened to us, and moved to the French Quarter of New Orleans. Uh, Now, this would have been, again, in 95. From when we first moved to to the French Quarter, Chad and I, again, we've never had children. We've lived a very experienced life. You know, just, just try to kind of throw caution to the wind and just experience life. Uh, we didn't have very much money. We didn't realize how expensive the French Quarter was. So we landed there, basically, having to start from the ground up. 
when we first got there, we ended up moving above what is considered the most traditional voodoo temple that exists in the French Quarter. It was the authentic voodoo temple. In fact, it's so authentic that Richard Dolan, now of the fame that he has received, the celebrity he's receiving, uh, back in the day, this would have been in the early 2000s, I'm thinking 2002, 2003, 2004, somewhere in that time frame, before Richard Dolan was so well-known in the UFO field, he was on a television show with several other people traveling the country investigating different types of paranormal happenings. Um, He happened to be with this group and they stayed at the voodoo temple that Chad and I lived at. Uh, now, we were there, of course, in 1995, 96. So this was several years before Richard Dolan was there. But, again, considered the most authentic. Chad and I had had no interest, nor do we to this day, have any interest whatsoever in voodoo. We needed a place to live. The Voodoo Temple was a huge tourism, obviously, location. Also, the priestess of this temple was connected to the movie companies, uh, big movie companies. And every time big movie came in out of California or what have you to make movies, to deal with paranormal, voodoo, so on and so forth, it was generally done at the temple and the um, courtyard. The slave quarters of the courtyard had been converted into small apartments. Uh, We happened to live directly above the voodoo temple itself in a small apartment that Chad and I, you know, we were able to rent very inexpensively, willing to go in and paint it and pretty it up and so on and so forth. a lot of high strangeness, obviously, just connected to voodoo, which we had no knowledge of, was taking place with Chad and I in that location. Um, When I'm talking about high strangeness there, I'm talking about ghosties. Uh, I use kind of baby talk when I'm talking paranormal just to take the scary out of it. But we had ghost experiences. We had uh, time slips. We had, uh, I had what I presume, because she didn't tell me who she was, but she presented herself as what I would, what I thought was a Virgin Mary apparition, connection. That's very involved and very strange. Um, Can you describe it for us, though? Do you want to describe it? what happens? What happens is Chad was at work. He worked in the restaurant. He actually at that time was working on the famous Bourbon Street in in a large oyster bar. He happened to be at work that day. I wasn't working that day. And a girlfriend of mine decided to come over and spend the day with me. We were going to have drinks and, you know, a brunch and just hang out in the apartment. She, when I don't remember her being there very long before this happened, but again, time is irrelevant because 
uh, I'm just, it seems like I've had so much missing time. I'm just not sure even how long this happened, how long it took, how long the actual experience happened. But what happens is in relatively a short amount of time, my girlfriend got very sleepy. And we had just had a drink or two. It wasn't like we'd been all day long partying. She just felt the need to lay down and take a nap. I had a day bed in my living room, a brass day bed. She just curled up and went to sleep. I decided to just leave the room and go into my bedroom to give her privacy. I remember going in my bedroom, but the next thing I know, everything had changed. Next thing I know, when I walked into my bedroom, I'm now standing back in my living room as if I'd shut the door going into one room, but next thing I know, I'm back in my living room. My living room looked like it probably was out of the 16 or 1700s, which is what those buildings were. They were authentic buildings from the 16 and 1700s. At the point of me being back in my living room, it's as if I had been slammed back in time. All the work Chad and I had done on our apartment, that didn't exist. It was old looking. It was shabby looking, tired, uh, not dirty, but just shabby. My girlfriend's not in the picture at all. I'm the only one in the room. Next thing I'm aware of is there are three young, I'm guessing in their late teens, early 20s, but I feel stronger about late teens. They look like three slave women. They look like women from the day that those slave quarters were slave quarters. They were standing in a row, side by side. They had on shabby dresses. Their hair was wild, like it had never been touched, combed. They were so joyful. I don't know how to find the words to describe their joy. It emanated out of them to feel and taste it. They were so happy. They were reaching towards me. They were several feet away from me. Their arms were all outstretched towards me. And they kept saying, we want to just touch us. We want to touch you. And their, you know, arms are extended. Their hands are extended towards me. And as I felt the need to move towards them, I'm instantly aware that there's another presence directly behind me. And when I say behind me, it was so close, it was as if I could feel her on my neck. I pivoted around. There wasn't even enough room between her and I for me to, you know, take a step. I just pivoted place. And there, right in front of my face, was this being that was veiled uh, and robed like the pictures I had seen of the Virgin Mary. She never said that who she was. There was no preaching. There was no dogma of any kind. She just emanated love, like, again, I don't know how to describe. Her arms were outstretched or opened, her veiled arms, 
as if she was gesturing to hug me. As I leaned into her, I fell into her. I don't mean literally, but I mean literally. I'm not even sure how to describe what I'm trying to describe to you. It was, it was the eternal hug. And as I fell into her, she leaned into my ear and said what I've heard other people who've heard us tell this describe as sounding disturbing. But this is literally what she said to me. She called me by name, and she said in a voice that I cannot duplicate on my best day, in the most melodic, harmonious tone, she said, Alta, you must get stable. Those were her words. And with that, the experience was over. Now, uh, you know, everything reverted back. Uh, I don't remember seeing my girlfriend again that day. I've got missing time for the rest of that day. But that is the clear, very distinct memory of that encounter. Now, let me give you a little history of what you were talking about. The New Orleans Voodoo Spiritual Temple was established in New Orleans, Louisiana, in May 1990 by priest Oswan Chamani and priestess Miriam Chamani. Over the years, the temple has grown in its knowledge of voodoo in relation to the world religions and serves many people throughout America and the world. The temple follows a unique version of voodoo that combines the elements of other spiritual paths with traditional practices. It has become known through television and movie production and is visited by many representatives of universities, anthropologists, and researchers in African-based religion. The temple has a troop of sacred drummers called the the Kairi of the Nutria led in part by Louis Martini, who has played for the New Orleans Voodoo Museum at various local part by uh, functions. Anyway, it's located at 828 North Rampart Street. Do you remember that address? In the French Quarter, yeah. across Absolutely. from the historic Con- Congo Park. I thought you'd like to hear the address again. Congo Park Square, where African slaves were held their rituals every Sunday evening in the 17th through 1800s. The Virgin Mary is the predominant focus of this church. I just want to let you know that. Oh, wow. Did you know that? Thank you for sharing. Yeah, I just I actually just found it, and actually uh, right in the middle of uh, the whole worship te- uh, altar is Our Lady of Guadalupe, the Virgin Mary. Oh, wow. That's interesting. Guadalupe is my middle name. Oh, strange. Okay. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and it just gets stranger. Yeah. Uh, it does, it? I know. I just had to tell you guys that. So, uh, go uh, on yeah. with the story. Thank you. I got two. Yeah. Now you got a little more just, information. Yeah, because I don't think we've ever looked up the... No, the priest had died just uh, a year or so prior to us moving there. Chad mm-hmm. had, again... You know, so much about our our UFO experiences take time, so we were trying not to spend a lot of time in this area, but Chad had a very uh, involved encounter with the spirit of that priest. And then I'll just mention, uh, you know, again, because Chad and I had no interest in voodoo, that didn't mm-hmm. sit well for those who are involved in voodoo. So... 
that's a part of our history we've been very grateful to leave behind us. Yes, go ahead. Well, um, this was probably the first, second night we were there. It was within the first week, anyway. Um, I, we, we were in bed, we were asleep, and I kept feeling like this bug was on me, and it was right in the exact same spot, kind of right above my heart, and I would I would wake up and scratch, thinking there was a bug on me, because you don't have to be dirty to, to have bugs in, in the French Quarter, you know, especially the mm-hmm. big palmetto bugs. They're everywhere. And so I'd wake up and I'd scratch. I'd wake up and I'd scratch. And this happened quite a few times throughout the night. And the next morning, I I had dug a, a, a you know a couple of layers of skin. You know, it messed with me so bad. And you know, if it was a bug, it would be you know on my chest one moment, my arm the next. You know, it would be moving around. So I go on to work, and then my kind of my memory starts coming back to me. And I remember a very small framed African, very African-y looking man. Uh, I could only see him from his waist up. His waist down was very misty. Uh, but he had no shirt on. He had a couple of necklaces with some beads and bones on it. Uh, he was kind of floating right above the bed. And what he was doing is he'd take his finger and he would tickle me right on my chest. And I would go up and scratch, and he would pull his arm back. I'd go back to sleep. He would go tickle me. I would scratch. He'd pull his arm back, and I. So, a couple of a, a few weeks or months later, another couple had moved in down below us to, to one of the other apartments there, and they had been married by the priest, and they start bringing out their. Um, their wedding photos, and they're showing me, and they said, well, this is, you know, the priest. And they show me this, and I'm like, wow, this is who was floating above me, kind of messing with me. And I told them the story, and they were like, yep, that's him. He was kind of a trickster. He would he would test you to see if you were worthy to be in his presence and all this. So that, that, was, that was kind of my first ghost thing that happened to me personally in the French Quarter. Now, there was quite a few other stories. I would always hear my name called, uh, you know, turn around and look and nobody around, um, you know, so. So essentially, again, just so we can get moved along and let their question, you know, this was this was happening to us in different arenas of the paranormal in one form or another for the first couple of years that we lived in the quarter. Now, if we may, we'll move us to 1997. Uh, Chad and I have worked very hard to make it, build a good name for ourselves in the community. And uh, at this point, I'm working in a very exclusive reading salon that had been started in 1929 in the French Quarter. It was owned by the same family. They kept it in the family. They ran a very tight ship. And uh, they brought me on board. And, and again, Chad was doing quite well for himself. He was entrepreneuring himself. And, again, we were coming along quite nicely. We'd left the Voodoo Temple area, moved into a very 
again, high strangeness involved in everything with us. Uh, we moved into this most amazing townhouse with the balcony like you see on television when you see anything about the French Quarter. This, uh, this place that we moved into was furnished. The furniture looked like Louis the something out of a castle. It was, as Chad's saying, the original. It was unbelievable. And for very low rent uh, is what we were offered to move into this location. So, you know, we were, we were counting our blessings, thinking somebody out there likes us. And uh, we started building our lives. Uh, the salon that I worked in had hired a gal by the name of Jacqueline, who at the time was only 24. Chad was at that point now uh, 30, and I had just turned 40 in 1997, just to give you a perspective again of ages. Jacqueline was single had never been married and had no children. The family had hired her to manage the shop and several of us that worked in this shop. They had two locations in the French Quarter. Jacqueline had been hired to be a manager. Jacqueline and I, from the moment we met, she was a familiar to me, and I was to her. It was like long-lost family. Jacqueline was tall, slender, long blonde hair, very... A very happy person, no drama queen whatsoever. I think she'd rather pull her tongue out than tell a lie. Uh, she's not even a storyteller. She just, you know, just the facts, ma'am, kind of personality. She, one night, had asked if I wanted to go out into the quarter and have drinks and dinner. We'd never done it before. I said, sure. Let's do it. Let's call Chad. I know he'll want to join us. We only lived at that time a couple of blocks from our shop. We called Chad. He was on foot. He comes over to the shop. We close the shop at 9. It takes Jacqueline till around 9.30 to do her duties, you know, to shut the shop down. The three of us stepped outside of that shop around 9.30 p.m., the moment that we got out onto the sidewalk, we were heading to Bourbon Street, which was only a couple blocks from our shop. We were going to start at one end of the French Quarter and just work our way across the quarter, which was about somewhere 23 to 30 blocks. I'm not sure exactly of its size. We're just going to stop along the way and, you know, just see what happens for the evening. Now, we had lived there long enough, a couple of years, to know the rhythm of the quarter. And like all folks who know their community, you know your rhythm. You know when something's off. Well, it was clearly off the moment we stepped foot back out on that sidewalk outside of that shop to start our evening. As we started towards Bourbon, I can clearly remember taking note of that it felt weird, like the twilight zone. The vibration was off, the energy was off, and where's all the people? There were no people. There were a few scragglers. But this is the French Quarter. That's a 24-7, seven-day-a-week party. It never stopped. On this night, there were no people. As I said, a few stragglers. 
to speed the story up, we started at one end of that French Quarter. We actually started in a large restaurant bar, had a huge dance club above it with the balcony, again, like you see on television. That was one of the first locations Chad worked in a couple of years prior. So we knew everybody there, particularly the owners and the managers. When we got there, there wasn't a soul in this place, not in the downstairs bar, not in the courtyard, and not in the dance club upstairs. The only person there was a manager that we were friends with. Well, that just is too bizarre. We didn't want to stay. We wanted to get on with our night and see what was going on, and we just all took note of how weird this was. We didn't even stay long enough to have a drink. I believe the manager made us a house drink as a gift, but we didn't even drink it. We just, you know, we spent a couple minutes with him to be polite, and then back out on the street we went. We stopped at three locations across the French Quarter, and it's the same story. In every one of these locations, there's not a soul in there. I mean, if it was a restaurant, there was no wait staff, there was no cook staff, there was no patron. This doesn't happen. No bands. Chad's saying no bands. I mean, again, what we're describing does not happen. By this time now, we're at the very end of the quarter. We've, we've walked the whole distance. We've not had anything to drink. We've had no drugs, nor was there anyone around to drug us, because this has certainly been suggested many times. Now it's around 11-ish. We're out there a total hour and a half, sober, completely sober. We finally go to our last destination that happened to be a local bar. It's a little dive that all the famous musicians would go in and do gigs in when they didn't want to have the hassle of being celebrity. They'd slide into this little dive, and usually only folks like us who live there knew about it. Well, not on this night. Again, our last location, the door is wide open. But on this night, unlike any other night that I could ever remember, now we didn't live in these bars, obviously, but the times that we did visit, never did it have a doorman. But on this night, it had a cute little blonde, looked like around the same age as Jacqueline, doorman. But there's not a soul inside it. The door was wide open. We just stuck our head in and saw there's nobody in there. Oh, this is too weird. At this stage of the game now, I'm 40 and feeling 90. I just want to go home. And I remember I just, I started grumbling privately to Chad. I just want to go home. I am bored. I'd rather be home. These are the words I remember saying. Jacqueline is standing on the corner visiting with the little doorman. At least that's friendly. At least we felt like she had somebody to at least visit with. Chad and I walked away from the front entrance. We walked about half block or halfway down the block, and there was a stoop on the side of the building. And I remember Chad and I get to the stoop, and I tell Chad, let's call a cab. I didn't even want to walk the block home. I just wanted to go home that bad. And then that's the last thing the three of us remember. We collectively remember around 11-ish p.m. And then Chad and Jacqueline 
have no memory at all out of the three of us. I'm the only one that, as I will state it and have said consistently, was returned the next day. I didn't wake up. I was sitting straight up in my living room. And as I said, I didn't wake up. My eyes popped open. And I have a memory of what I call the in-between experience. I have no memory whatsoever of coming off that corner, and I have no memory whatsoever of being returned home, not even to this day. But I have a very distinct memory of in-between. Chad and Jacqueline have no memory at all. Now, Chad has had regression since, and he can give you a full account of his experience that night, and he thinks Jacqueline. But I'll point out before he describes that to you, Uh in my memory, in my memory of the in-between, I'm separated from Chad and Jacqueline. I'm not with them at all. And in Chad's regression, there's not one account of me in his experience. Only his own experience and what he thinks is Jacqueline. And if you're interested now, Ms. McCain, I'll ask Chad. Go ahead, Chad. Okay, so in my regression, uh, you know, well, first, the last thing I remember is being on that corner around 11. Right. Who was regressing you and, and how did you find your person during your regression and everything? Chad's pointing at me. I was determined to try to find somebody. Um, We didn't know what we were doing. We had moved to Alabama in 2001, quarter, and moved to Alabama in 2001. I was hard at it trying to get help. I finally came across a young woman who was interested. She had lived in California, studied regression, but in all honesty, she did not She had not had involvement in UFO, alien, abduction, any of that. Mm -hmm. That that became very prevalent when she got involved in doing the regression with Chad. Because as Chad describes to you about that, as Chad describes to you about that regression, what I'll Mm -hmm. point out, because I listened to the tape, is that when she got Chad to the point of describing the beings that he encountered in his experience, you could tell that she became so uncomfortable that at the most crucial times, she would move Chad away from the subject. So there's a, there's much in there still that needs to be, to come out that we're still yeah. in mystery of. But he has a fairly full account of that night. Okay, Chad, tell us about that night. All right, so in my regression, I I remember seeing that the the little bar that we were talking about, Checkpoint Charlie's, is on one corner. On the other corner is a, I, I believe it probably used to be some kind of like a drug store or something. It had the big glass, you know, windows, you know, that you could kind of see from one side to the other, um, and, you know, it had some backdrop, but you could still kind of see, you know, a little bit of, you know, light. I, I saw this bright light coming from around the corner and through these, this glass. So, 
I get the girl's attention, and we go around the corner, and we see this orb of light. It was probably 12 foot in diameter. It was about 15 foot off the ground. It was about mid-block, and we were right there on the corner. And about the time that the, all three of us got there uh, around the corner, it just came towards us and engulfed us. My next memory is I'm walking down this hallway. It's kind of gently turning to the right. Um, we're following this being. He's probably, you know, three, three and a half foot tall, big gray bulbous head. I only saw him from behind. Now, he wasn't like the little grays that you see on TV with the little thin, frail bodies. He had substance to him. He, he kind of waddled when he walked. He was almost dwarfish. He was wearing this very tight, thin, black, one-piece jumpsuit-looking thing. Um, preferably, I could see a tall, blonde female uh, to my left, but I didn't turn to look. This describes my friend, our friend Jacqueline, but like I said, it didn't turn to look to see if it was Jacqueline. My next memory is I'm in this room, and it just seemed infinite. It was huge. It was black, dark. I could not, I couldn't see the walls. Off to my right, I could see a tall, blonde female laying on an examining table. She was nude, but I couldn't see any body parts. Matter of fact, from head to toe, she was kind of blurred out like they do body parts on, you know, just regular television. Yeah. Uh, and the, uh, there were three beings around her, one in each uh, shoulder or one at each side and, and one at her head. They were very tall, I would say eight to nine foot tall, very buggy or praying manistee kind of looking, you know, big eyes, uh, big heads. Their mouths were close down, close to their chin. They were wearing these cloaks, almost like a Jesuit priest or uh, the Grim Reaper without the hood, you know, kind of thing. Mm -hmm. um, their arms were kind of crooked or they were, you know, kind of very stiff looking, you know. Uh, that whoever this person was on this table, this examining table, did not seem to be in distress or anything like that. Almost like they were out or, you know, in a, some kind of, you know, suspended animation or something. I focused my attention back to uh, my right. This, this person was over to my left. I think I said right, but over to my left. I focused my attention back to my immediate. Now, I never saw any kind of light sources around her or around me, but I could see kind of around her and I could see kind of around me. Um, I focused my attention to my immediate. I look over to the right, and there's this little blue being. Now, he looks a lot like the grays that you see on TV or contact or whatever, but... He was blue. And when I say blue, he was this electric, live, just 
vibrant blue. His aura, his presence, seemed like a professor slash scientist slash shaman slash, you know, holistic, just all combined, you know. He, he, I, I was never distressed or scared or panicky through any of my, my, of my experience. Uh, he walks, he, he gets over closer to me. He goes and picks up this box. And he has it in his right hand. He takes his left hand and he puts it into the side of the box. When he brings his hand out, there's this kind of blobby kind of substance. Almost kind of looked like a clear Play-Doh or that slimy stuff that the kids play with. But it was blue, like him. It had these little sparkly kind of um, uh, metal or... Um, like glitter kind of stuff in it. Mm-hmm. He sets the box. Actually, I don't even remember him setting the box down. He takes his right hand, and he's only got four digits. He takes his two outer fingers and kind of folds them in. He takes his two in finger, his two inner fingers, and holds them up almost kind of like in a peace sign or in kind of something like the way that you see Jesus or uh, Buddha. Do, you know, uh, kind of two fingers folded in, two fingers up. Mm-hmm. When, when he does this, this substance now, it's kind of free-floating above his left hand, just kind of undulating and moving around. When, when he puts his right hand up and does this, this substance starts spinning. And the faster it spins, this sparkly stuff and this and the blueness kind of dissipates out of it, and it's almost kind of floating around it, almost almost like the rings of Saturn, but it's all over. It's not kind of in a ring. It's just all over. And it starts slowing down, and it had turned into this double-pointed crystal, uh, very, you know, pyramid-y shape, but long, thin, you know, not much not much thicker than a, a pencil, really. Maybe a little bit thicker, but not much. Uh, I remember thinking to him, you know, why are you showing this to me? You know, I'm not a doctor. I'm not a scientist. I'm not an engineer. You know, this is something very, very important. He told me, I will know in time or when it's time. My next memory is I'm in this other room. There's only three walls, two very straight and one kind of concave. I um in 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 the middle of the room is this big overstuffed leather chair. I remember thinking to myself, it looks comfortable but it's not. How I knew that I don't know. I focus my attention to the wall that's kind of concave. And you know, all the walls and, you know, when I'm walking down the hallway and in this room, you know, I never saw any bolts or rivets or, you know, everything's very smooth, gray, metal, you know, walls. Uh, and this wall that was concave that I thought was just like all the other walls was this metal. It, it wasn't. I walked a little closer to it, you know, I'm, standing maybe five, six foot away from it at this point. 
I can see through it, and I can see stars and galaxy and planets, and you know, I was I'm out in the universe somewhere, and I'm just kind of standing there in awe, and all of a sudden this little craft goes past me, zooms past, it gets about nine, ten foot past me, and it stops. And it comes back, and it's almost like it's doing a double take. And it comes back, and it's setting right outside the wall. It's probably three foot long, two foot wide, almost like a football or a, a rugby ball. It's got little lights on it. There's little wires and antennas kind of moving around, things shifting around, little lights blinking on it. And... You know, I could feel intelligence coming out of it. It sits there for, you know, and like it was surprised to see me as I was it. Um, it sits there for 30, 45 seconds and split. It just takes off again and just fast. And then my next memory, I'm waking up in bed the next morning. Wow. We have so many questions that... That they're asking about your experience. They want to know, uh, Anne wants to know in chat, um, did it, do you notice their hands? Did they have how many fingers? Did they have thumbs? Yeah, they were just four digits. Four digits. No, like, no, like a... Go ahead, describe this. There was, there was kind of a thumb, but, I mean, they were long, a lot, their, their fingers and their thumbs were a lot longer than mine. You know, there was a, a thumb and three fingers. But they were, you know, very, you know, it wasn't like our thumb. You know, they was much longer, almost as long as a finger, you know. Okay. So, if I may, Miss McCain, I, I wanted to interject also. As I said in the beginning, I'm the only one out of the three that seemed to be returned or whatever, with memory of the in-between experience. Now, in my experience, I'm, I mean, there's, you know, there's more, there's quite a bit to it, but when I came to the next morning sitting up in my living room, beside the fact that I've got an object in my upper arm, uh, People call these implants, I reject the language, I call them unknowns, um, because I have no memory of something being implanted in me. And until I have that memory, to me, these are unknowns. But the reason why I'm interjecting right now is that, with questions about their fingers, is that in my memory, I'm with a female with long blonde hair that everybody wants to call a Nordic. Again, this is everyone else's language, not mine. I don't even call them aliens or ET or any of that. I'm just I'm I'm standing on a crater with a female that is just like those males I described to you when we first started. She's so physically beautiful. There are no words to describe her. She looked normal with the exception of her beauty her hands, everything else. When I came to the, and she's tall, she's very tall, over six foot, I would guesstimate. 
but my point of interjecting is that the next morning when I came to, and then I came to about an hour before Chad woke up, when Chad came out of the bedroom, I'm already going through unbelievable trauma all by myself because I've got an object in my upper arm that's very evident, and I went through a whole experience all by myself with that object. And then within an hour, Chad wakes up. When he comes out of the bedroom towards me, I'm looking at him, and he can see the shock in my face, and I can see almost the shock in his. He's expecting me to tell him how we got home. And, of course, I'm expecting the same thing from him, and and I'm, you know, almost I'm a control, in, in a controlled hysteria. As he moves towards me and he can see that I can't tell him anything other than the trauma I'm going through with this object in my upper arm, I'm too busy for the first hour dealing with the front of my body. I don't have time to check my body out. Chad walks around me, and I'll have Chad describe to you what he saw. My there's, uh, there's these marks, these bruises. They're four digits, as if somebody was either holding her up or holding her from behind. And these four digit bruises are very long fingered, wrapping around both my arms. Now, in my memory, I'm not with any being that uh-huh. has four digits, like what Chad is described in his regression. So, you know, I just, I just, when given an opportunity, we like to point these different things out. You know, just more of the yeah. mystery. There was another uh, question where, um, let's see. I wanted to know about the the physicality. I just can't find it. Um, okay, did you was it painful? Did you see any scars? Were there any bruises left? To who, uh, to either of after us these, after waking up. Yes. Chad. Uh, not for me. Uh, I just had those bruises on my arm that only lasted a day or so. But there was no pain. But there was... Okay. So the so-called, what, well, the implant or anything that you don't call an implant, was it unknown? Uh, was it painful in your arm? Not at all. Not at all. But it has okay. very strange properties. First of all, when I first discovered this, when, when my eyes pop open, I'm sitting Indian style like I do privately in my home. So... Try to imagine, all of a sudden, I'm sitting in my living room. Last thing I remember, it's 11-ish at night on a corner. The next thing I know, I'm sitting up in my living room the next day. It's the next day. And I'm rubbing my arm as my eyes pop open. As I'm rubbing my arms, I can feel something protruding out of the upper left arm. Um, I, I believe we sent you all these pictures Yes, you know, I have them up. What we have. Yeah, I have and them so up and they're, even they're going around. Even though the unknown, as far as I'm concerned, looks very mundane in those x-rays, there's nothing mundane about it. 
As I'm rubbing my arms, I can feel something sticking out, and it's sharp. But again, there's not an ounce of pain. And I'm trying to figure out what in the world is sticking out of my arm. It's tiny, very tiny, but it's protruding enough when I rub my hand over it, it's sharp. I go in the bathroom to get a pair of tweezers to pull this out of my arm. What I pull out of my arm is I'm very bad on measurement and numbers and math, but it seems like it's an eighth of an inch of fat long, very tiny. But it's sharp like a piece of cactus sticker. But again, there's not any pain. Now, logic makes no sense. That's not computing. That I could have a piece of sticker in my arm. Where in the world did I get it? And how come it doesn't hurt? When I pulled this thing out of my arm, it's now between my fingers. It goes from being a solid, looking like a piece of cactus sticker, to then it starts to dissolve. As it's dissolving, it's becoming translucent, like when you eat celery, the fibers of celery. It's liquidy and becoming translucent and dissolving. Now I'm absolutely flipping out. I'm flipping out inside, internally. I turn on the faucet and I scrub to the point of where I thought my hands would bleed. I wanted, as I've said this before, I wanted that away from me. I wasn't interested in proof. I could have cared less. I was going through so much trauma all by myself. Because here i am got a memory of I'm on a crater. I'm standing on a crater, on the edge of a crater. It looked like it looked like I was on the moon or another planet. Now, again, I have no idea where I was, what was happening to me, anything like that. But this is what it looked like. This is what the memory described. So it left a teeny tiny hole where I pulled that solid out of my arm. And what remains is a fairly large lump that's just underneath the top layer of skin, that when you stretch the skin, you can feel the width, the diameter of it. The uh, At times, it feels so sharp, like it's going to puncture my skin. There's never been an ounce of pain with it. It moves. It, it will bury itself all the way down to the bone, where only mm. I know that it's there. Uh, at times, it will stick out of my arm like a big bug bite, like when you get bit by something and there's a lump. It seems to do tricks. It is mind-blowing. Nobody has taken interest in this, and that's beyond my comprehension. Uh, right. When I went to get my original x-rays, nobody has ever questioned me, nor do they seem to believe me about how the medical doctor who did the initial x-rays flipped out. Now, I used to work in the medical profession. In these, doctors don't flip out. This one did, and all he did was touch the object in my arm. There's a great deal to that story, but the fact is when he wanted away from me, and believe me, he wanted away from me like I had, like I had the plague, he sent me in to get the x-rays. The object would not take an x-ray until the third time. 
the first two times, the x-ray tech now is losing her mind because this object is very obvious. You can feel, see, and touch it. She knew it was there, but the first two times she took an x-ray, what we got was a perfect x-ray of my arm with nothing there. Again, it, it didn't take a picture until the third time. I went through that experience twice because I went back to get second x-rays sometime later, uh, days later, weeks later. I can't remember exactly. This was back in 2002. And the object, again, chose to not take a picture the first first or second time. Uh, so, you know, that's what I'm describing can't happen, and that's exactly what happened. But never once has there been pain. But the trauma that we've been put through by humans has been unbelievable. Yes, that's, that's the worst. Well, I'm going to give you the report from yesterday of what was going on over Louisiana. Um, this is just yesterday. I have one, two, three, four, five, six, seven reports. Vivid white triangle clusters in the sky. Two pale red lights, one sitting right next to the other, appear at Hoover and move across the sky. Orange sphere overlooking object overlooking Huma. Metallic teardrop shapes. Strange bright blue object moving erratically through the night sky. Nothing I've ever seen like them or can explain. I have given the best description I could. Somebody saw a fleet of 30-plus UFOs on the 18th. This is September. Four large aircraft machines with five large round blue lights flying just above the trees, 918. Numerous red lights over Huma, 918. And it goes on and on. So it's very active. It seems like a very active UFO center and that you landed there is, uh, is Providence, really. And to me, you're supposed to be over there. You're drawn to it. It's Something's all, going on. Yeah, and the fact that this happened to us in the French Quarter of New Orleans, with all the research yes. I've done, I've never found it. We haven't been able to find, because what you just spoke about is a location called Homa, Louisiana, mm -hmm. which is interesting about Homa is that is where uh, the general was from, from the uh, Roswell experience. How odd. That was his thought. Right. Yeah, because I'm That's talking Fardell, Lafayette, Homa, Homa, Florida and Pearl River, right. and also uh, New Orleans and Marksville, St. Francisville. But this is just a lot, a lot of activity. Someone even saw a cigar shape. And there's a weird, there's a lot of weird anomalies over there. Uh, during the Depression, my uncle was hitchhiking through there when he was a young man, and uh, he had a very bizarre experience. Um, we would call it a men in black experience and uh, strangeness like Chad was talking about. Um, but he would never say that. He just said, oddly, that he was hitchhiking down a road that turned suddenly silent, like you were talking about, Alta. And he said it was so silent and then turned so terribly black that he laid on the ground because he felt like he was going to fall, fall off the earth. So he laid down on the ground, and as he was laying on it, well, he, was, he was still clinging to the ground because it was profound darkness. He looked, and at mm -hmm. a distance, he saw some lights. And he slowly got up, and he was still scared to 
because he thought he was going to fall up or fall down or something like that. It was just so profound. He said he knew those lights were coming for him, and a guy pulled up and leaned over and opened up the passenger door, didn't say a word to him. He said for some reason he got in, because usually you didn't do that back in the Depression because somebody would bump you off and take your stuff. But he did it. Right. Next thing he, Yeah, but he said the next thing he remembers is that he was at a diner with a cup of co- drinking a cup of coffee. And I right. thank God I have this recorded, right, because I said, Uncle Lou, uh, what are you saying? He said, I don't know. I'm just telling you I had an odd experience in New Orleans. I never went back. He said it changed his life because he slowed down with my Aunt Kathy. He's my dad's older brother. But um, it had a profound impact just being there. And in the square, he said he was sitting there one day and realized, he said he saw a lot of couples in the square, a lot of lovebirds go there and stuff like that. And he said he realized it's no life for him to be a single. He had to go get my aunt. So they got married, and they were married, you know, 57 years before she passed. He's still alive, though. But anyway, there is some odd things going on over there. Amazing. Isn't it amazing? So curious it's amazing. It is amazing. we got about uh, 20 minutes left. So, well, 18. And so uh, why don't you uh, tell us uh, the rest of your story? Well, after, after obviously, this happened to us, uh, it took me probably, we'll try to kind of speed this up a little bit. It took me about a year. Um, so now we're into 1998, and I had to leave New Orleans. I had to leave. There was nothing going to stop me, and I had to go back out to the West. Now, with no reason, just had to. I was determined. I knew, and to this day I have no idea what crater I was standing on, but I knew that I couldn't get to another planet, but I knew that I came from the land of craters, Arizona, the Southwest. So something inside of me was driving me to leave New Orleans and go back to the West. Chad was young and agreeable back then. I doubt he would now, but he was agreeable back then, and we decided to pack up everything we owned and our Great Dane and our Roddy Dobe and uh, head out to the West. We didn't have any clue where we were going. Uh, The people I worked for, in all honesty, I was able to make a great deal of money for this family business, so they didn't want to lose me, so they agreed to let me go off on this, I guess in their eyes, tangent, and maintain my job. They decided that no matter where I was, they could send phone calls to wherever I was in the country. So, uh, you know, I didn't even care at that point about job or anything. I was determined to try to figure out In all honesty, I was trying to find her. And the her was this woman, this being that I was standing on that crater with. She just was, to this day, is so remarkable to my soul. Because wherever I was and whoever she was, I felt I was home. And 
I felt that I was absolutely connected to her if she was not an extension of me. I truly feel that I was an extension of her and vice versa. So we took off, Chad and I, in a big, huge truck and pulling our car and so on and so forth. And off to New Mexico we went. We got to Albuquerque, New Mexico, and rented a house there on Route 66 and, uh, you know, spent a great deal of money just getting ourselves set up there for me to very shortly afterwards determine that's not where we were supposed to be. Now, again, please all keep in mind we have no children, so we never had to answer to anybody. We were just we were just living out a life. And one day I remember coming outside of that house where we were on the on the outskirts of Albuquerque and I looked up in the mountains surrounding Albuquerque and I pointed up in those mountains and I told Chad, We're going up there. That's where that's what's calling me. It took us some time to finally find a place to rent up in those mountains. It was probably about 20 or 25 miles outside of Santa Fe in a small community that wasn't even big enough to be called a town. It was at that time called a village. And it's pronounced Madrid, spelled like Madrid, Spain, but they, the locals pronounce it Madrid. It's become quite famous now. It's an artisan community, so on and so forth. Lots of movies are made up in that area, such as John Travolta made a movie some years back, Wild Hogs, I think is what it's called. I haven't seen these movies. James Woods made a vampire movie in the community closest to it. So, you know, it's becoming quite famous now. But this mm-hmm. was in 19, this was 98, when 98 into 99 when we moved up there. Still somewhat very much unknown. Uh, we had lots of high strangeness take place up there and I'll have Chad share with you his experience with a with a guy you know the black eyed children story that everybody's speaking about now. Ooh, yeah. He had an encounter with an adult black eyes. Well wow. it was this guy we had met when we first went up there and he was just this you know, what I thought was this cool old hippie guy and we were there at this little local, it was the saloon, it was the hitching post. It was It was just this old saloon that was from way back, 1800. Um, and we're kind of at this big round table. There's probably seven or eight of us there. And he says something kind of off-color to, towards, towards Alta and I now. I don't think Alta... Um, uh, didn't she didn't catch it and I kind of looked over at him and he just kind of really looked my way and his whole eyes were black I mean there were no white there was no color There was his whole eyeball was black it freaked me out he I was trying never, to do him harm I, I'd never seen anything like this it was almost like yeah he was trying to possessed me or something like that, I kind of put up a psychic block and, you know, kind of prayed from, you know, the inside out, and uh, he 
man out. Left me alone. You know, he he left. But what's so bizarre about this is this guy, like Chad described, old hippie, because that's what lived up in this village. A lot of outlaws out of Humboldt, California, a Mm -hmm. lot of uh, old hippies, uh, outlaws, you name it, what have you, were settled up into the mountains in that area. And this old hippie guy owned, you know, a little house and a shack next to it. He knew that Chad and I were trying to move up into the area, and he very much wanted us to live, rent his or live next to him. I mean, he was so, he seemed determined that he was going to befriend us in this manner. And he was just so uh, easy to get along with that, you know, we were polite. There was no way we were going to live in his shack, but, you know, we thought it was really kind of him to take us under his wing and offer us this and so on and so forth. So the behavior is so bizarre because it changed that fast where I'm very observant, and especially with my crazy history, and this man didn't have black eyes. This man had eyes like any other so-called normal human. But what Chad describes is absolutely like what you hear with these black-eyed children. And his mannerism and his nastiness, because he was trying to do Chad harm. And, oh. you know, Chad has never put up a, as he just put it, psychic block yeah. against anybody. So, you know, just the experience in itself was, we never well, saw Chad, him again. He, yeah, he, he felt that he wasn't safe and he put a block on him, which is good. Yeah. Because I'm and not sure what's going to happen if you let him in, if you can get him out. I mean, right? Geez, I don't know. And you're right, I'll well, give you a little you background know, in the area. You were talking about the ending of the film, Wild Hogs was there in 2007. The literature, it was uh, Belinda Vesquez Garcia's novel, The Witch Narratives, Reincarnation, was 2012. And uh, in the 20s and 30s, Madrid was a company-owned coal mining town. And Breaking Bad was filmed over there and where they're doing wow. the math and all that. Interesting. Wow. Go ahead. I never watched that show, but I know how popular it is. I just know that it's oh, yeah. become extremely popular. Uh, you know, so. again, along with the strangeness of it, when Chad and I moved up there, it was essential I had a telephone. That was our income. And mm-hmm. we were promised no problem to transfer our phone from Albuquerque up into that area. Well, we're up there over a week or whatever, a couple weeks, and we now nobody believes us on this. So, you know, so be it. We're just telling it exactly the way we experienced it. We get a form letter from the phone company. It's a form letter indicating that we can write them a personal check or a credit card or a, or cash for the amount was close to $300,000 to put to give us a phone. Now, what in, you know, that's insanity. Wow. So Chad, Chad has to go make a phone call. At, at that time, the only phone, public phone, was in, you know the old show Petticoat Junction? 
Did you? Are yeah, you old I was to trying, know? I was just starting to think of uh, Green Acres of him going up the pole and trying to get the phone company to put right. the phone in. Right. Where? Right. Well, I was just like thinking, that. right. So Chad's got to go to the only bed and breakfast in the village that had the pay phone to call the phone company to say, hey, you know, what up? Where's our phone? Well, they assure Chad, no problem. You know, we're sorry. We'll get to that, basically. Chad comes home and informs me, all's well, don't panic, you know, so on. So we decide we're going to have, New Orleans was about to have a hurricane hit it. This isn't the big one that took place, you know, a few years back, but this is, New Orleans is used to having hurricanes, obviously. So what they do in New Orleans or Louisiana for hurricanes is they have hurricane parties. So we decided to get friendly with the locals that happened to be all Hispanic, Indian, Mm -hmm. Caucasian, folks that had lived there all their lives for probably hundreds if not thousands of years. And they're checking us out like, what the hey are we doing there and who are we and what are we? Let's again remember there's a lot of outlaws up there. So we decided to have a hurricane party and introduce ourselves to everyone and invite them to our home. So on this particular day, now you also can't get cable. We didn't know any of this. We've never lived in the mountains before. We're just city folk not knowing what we're doing, stumbling along, making lots of mistakes. We decided to have a hurricane party and invite the locals. Well, they all took us up on it because they want to check us out. Well, we can't get cable, but satellite was new, satellite dish, new. So we could get one of those. So on this particular day, we're going to have this hurricane party. we got all these locals that have come for the party. We're going to have food and drinks and watch the hurricane hit New Orleans on television with our new satellite dish. Because none of these folks had TV either. So, literally, I can't make this stuff up. I'm not that creative. we got all these people sitting in our living room. Chad's in the kitchen, which is all open, facing the television, and he's playing bartender. I'm playing hostess with the mostess. We've got a black Great Dane at the time and a half Rottweiler Doberman, black and brown, big dogs, that we've got blocked on the stairway that all the locals can see. That we don't let the dogs around the people. But they're lovers. Our dogs were lovers. No biting. So the reason for pointing that out is I walk over, we satellites just gotten hooked up just in time for the party, and literally I turn the television on, and rather than a hurricane hitting New Orleans, what we see is my husband, Chad, and my two dogs I've just described to you are on the television set walking across the screen. Now, with my mouth hanging open, and it's hard to make me speechless, I am, because I can't believe what I'm seeing. Imagine all the locals who are looking at Chad, looking at the dogs, looking at the television. It's like watching a tennis match. How odd. Yeah, yeah. And what it essentially ended up being was, Chad. A a few months or a year prior. uh, Before we left, uh, Animal Planet had come in 
and uh, to the French oh Quarter, the French, and they um, they were filming at this place I uh, kind of worked at. It was called Three Dog Bakery, and so they came in and they were doing this little ditty about the Three Dog Bakery, and I had the the our dogs in there at the time, and so. But the point is, nobody told us that. So you, you know, were our, you was there, and you just have to be catching it with everybody else. Okay, we're getting people begging because we only have four minutes left about the Bigfoot. We're probably going to have to have you on part two. We'll call you back in. Uh, I don't know. I think my next opening is in the end of November, but uh, they want to hear about Bigfoot. So could you? We can keep uh, taping, but in about three minutes, nobody's going to be able to hear it, and we can, they can listen to it in archives in, in full. So uh, we have to talk about um, Bigfoot, and then we'll go back to that story, okay? Could you skip it a little bit just so they can hear you right now? And then they can listen to it again in archives. Yeah, what has happened is um, this was in Alabama. My um, my. My brother was taking my dad to the Atlanta airport. Uh, we live um, uh, right outside of Birmingham, or they live right outside of Birmingham. About three hours. About three hours from Atlanta. They're taking my, uh, my brother's taking my dad, and this was like early in the morning. Um, so they get right around the Talladega National Forest. And they see what they thought was this guy with a big backpack on the side of the road. Well, they get a little closer, and this thing stands up. And they said it was probably about... Now, this is my brother talking. My dad don't talk about this stuff. But my my brother's telling me this story. He says that this thing was probably eight, nine foot tall, very hairy. And they said that it just kind of has passed it. It just kind of nonchalantly watched them drive past, took three or four steps into the and and was into the woods. They it was just crazy. Also, it happened to be it happened to be on a highway. They said about eight nine foot tall. Okay, and so it was, on, uh, it was on this side of the guardrail on the highway side of the guardrail. Okay. Rather than the opposite side of the guardrail, it was standing on the highway side or crouched down on the highway side. And wow. it seems like, listen to it described, that it, it was stood as they were approaching it and looked at them. They said that it looked at them. And now okay, we have about and one then minute. Okay, I'm going to have to, just excuse me, we're going to keep talking, because, and I have, um, have the capability of going over a little, and so we're going to start taping. People aren't going to be able to hear, so I want you to give your contact information, and she does these gorgeous shawls. Uh, so give your address where people can get a hold of you on your website, please, while we're still live. Uh, our, web, our website is www.readingswithouta.com. Uh, you can also find us on Facebook, The Unique Rabbit Shawls and Gifts. And then my name is Chad Dillard. You can find us uh, on, uh, find me on Facebook. Now, Unique is spelled U-N-E-E-K, Unique Rabbit Shawls. 
Okay, thank you so much. And uh, for our listeners, we're going to keep taping. So for the rest of the show, it'll take a few minutes after the show's over. It'll be an archive, so you can listen to it in your its entirety. And I want to thank everybody that's been listening tonight, and everybody in the chat and the call-ins, and because uh, I could see you on the phone, and we all the listeners, we appreciate you every week. And uh, next week we're going to have Paul Wesley, and he's in the, he's our advocate in the streets for. Uh, he's really mad about the chemicals and all that other stuff. So I just can't hardly wait. And he's also a UFO experiencer, so. We're on recording now. Okay, so let's go back to the let's go back to your story. And uh, we were actually at we we're just leaving in Madrid, and you're just getting ready to move to Denver. So go. You want to start from there and go okay. back. Okay. Okay. If I might also add, since there's such interest in, uh, I call him Sasquatchy. Uh, we have a couple more experiences involving that, if anyone was interested in hearing that any further. If not, we'll certainly go to Denver and pick it up from there. Well, go ahead. Just say what you want to say, because we have a little time now. It's just uh, that uh, we're now being, we're on recording, and you can listen to it all in archives. So to them, it's a whole one show. It doesn't sound like it's split up or anything. So go ahead, and uh, okay. you can go wherever you want to go. Well, just finishing out the Bigfoot or the Sasquatch experiences, uh, Chad had a Chad had an encounter himself, and and then I had an I and another person had an encounter in our backyard with what I call invisible Sasquatches. Uh, but I'd have Chad describe to you what he encountered. Well, we had grown up. Uh, we do a lot of. Um, uh, Shows with, you know, like last week we were at Mothman uh, Festival here in Point Pleasant. We do, you know, we we had done this, we were doing this ghost show. It was somewhere around Portsmouth, uh, Ohio. Mm-hmm. And we had, uh, we, we the, traveled uh, and You were just at the like, Mothman thing? Wasn't uh, Nick Redfern over there and... Yeah, yeah. It was Did you see him? Oh, cool. Yeah, yeah I didn't hear his guy. I didn't, you know, of course, we're doing vending, so we never get to hear the speakers, but we met him up in uh, Minnesota uh, a couple of years ago, and him and Alta uh, got to uh, got to get real close up there, and he, he's a really great guy, really nice. We consider him friend. Yeah, he, he yeah. he's really cool. Well, that whole area and that whole scene uh, is my, actually my favorite uh, cryptozoological thing, is uh, yeah. is the Mothman. That's yeah, the one well, this was our fourth, yeah, this is our fourth year here at Mothman Festival, and we really, we really enjoy it. We, uh, we've got a lot of people that come back and see us every year, and so it's, it's it's fun, but uh, we were doing this show over in Ohio, and we have we travel in an RV. I call it our little hacienda. Mm-hmm. Cool. But, uh, we got up on on the, I found this RV park or whatever it's called. It was way up on this mountain. I had no idea what I was getting into, but we get up there. I get everything parked, and by that time it's getting kind of dark, and. Uh, 
we travel around with our new dog, which one's a red healer and another one's a Australian shepherd mix. And I, I get them on their leashes and we walk down this dirt road, you know, probably, you know, a half mile and we walk back and we get kind of close to the, back to the motor home. It's surrounded in a forest. Yeah, it's way up on this mountain full of, you know, it's way out in the woods. And I hear what I call a, this grunt snort. And it was like, <clears throat> like that, you know, kind of very, snort. yeah, it was really yeah. weird. And, I mean, the dogs, I thought they were about to jump out of their skin. Like they looked and, you know, I looked and I rushed back in and I'm like, out, 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 there's something out there. I said, I, it's Bigfoot or something. You know, I said, it it run snorted at me. <laughs> <laughs> you know, she's like. I got all excited. Oh. Yeah, she's like, and we had just, we just cooked, you know, we cooked uh, hot dogs. And so we had hot dogs and, and macaroni salad and all this. So she goes, oh, we got to make him a plate, you know, an offering. Okay, so she makes him a hot dog, and we give him some chocolate. And, and Cheetos. Cheetos and these little cinnamon jelly sugary things, you know. It's like these little jellies that have the sugar on it, but they were cinnamon. Yeah. A whole variety snack pack. It's just a big plate full of stuff. So she goes, so go set it outside. I'm like, okay, all right, you're the boss. He doesn't want to do it. I don't want to do it, but... Okay, here we go. So I go out there and I set it on this log back behind the, the motorhome. And, you know. And then scurries back at as fast as he can. And, well, you know, before we could even get our eyes open the next morning, I was just like, go look, go look, go look, go look, go look out and see what's on the plate. Well, I get out there and the, the plate's clean. It's not knocked off the log. There's no and paper it, plate. It, yeah, it's a little paper plate. There's there's no tracks around it. There's you know because if it was like a deer or a dog or something like that, now everything there everything's gone except a little cinnamon jelly. They were hmm. never touched. But there's I mean, no crumbs. There's no crumbs. You know, if it was a dog, you know they'd have knocked the plate over and Mm-mm. scattered the food. There was none mm-hmm. of that. And I was like, could have been a deer. Could you see a deer running through the woods with a hot dog in with his mouth? With a sticking out of his <laughs> mouth. And, yeah. and then we discovered that the woman who owned the park, yeah, it was her father's land. So she'd been born and raised there all her life, and she's probably around my age, in her 50s, I'd say. And she not knowing that this had happened to us, has shared with us. Yeah, we, we, we come up and uh, and told her, you know, that we were there for this ghost show down in, at, in town. And she goes, well, you know, um, the Bigfoot people that are on TV, they were up here a couple of weeks ago, and they were up here searching. She said, there's a lot of activity. She said, and I don't tell this to a lot of people, she said, but I... It, her husband is a, um, a, a prison guard, and so he's gone a lot at night and stuff. So she said her 
and one of her girlfriends were sitting out in her backyard, and she said, I ain't scared of nothing. She said, I was born in these woods, and I'm not scared of nothing. But she said, me and my friend were sitting out in the backyard not too long ago, and she said, all of a sudden, it was like somebody was watching us. She said, it creeped me out so bad, we had to go back in the house. She said, and I ain't scared of nothing. So... And then, like, one of the last nights we were there, we started kind of walking up this uh, dirt road. And we go a little bit farther and a little bit farther and a little bit farther. But, like, the last night we were there, we could hear this chatter out in the woods. And it sounded, you know, it was um, sounded like a lot of the chatter that we've heard on, on radio since then, uh, on, you know, Internet radio. And then, but very feminine, and then, you know, there, and then there was some that sounded very juvenile, but, uh... It seemed never, to be moving along in the woods, along, like, pacing. Yeah. This chatter was going on as Chad and I are walking the dogs, uh, seeming to pace us, and, the and dogs, we could never see anything. The dogs would, every, every once in a while, they'd stop and kind of, you know, their ears would go up and they'd look. And you know, it was it was very strange. You know, and the the woods up there were really thick, so you know we couldn't really see anything. But we could. It was almost it almost felt like something was kind of following us. Or several. Yeah. By chattering, and, are you saying it almost was like somebody was talking, or they were yeah, communicating it was like, some way? Yeah, the, there was communication, yeah, but we couldn't understand the language. Yeah, very. We, we've heard a lot of, of uh, recordings, now. recordings now of of what people are calling big, Bigfoot chatter, and it sounded exactly like that. Mm-hmm. It was just really strange. It was really crazy, almost like a foreign or Native American language kind of, but very different. And then, if I made the tail end of our Bigfoot experiences was uh, there's a lot to the experience that I won't take up your time with now, but just to share with you what happened with me in Alabama, uh, before we purchased our motorhome, we were buying a home. Now, we've since given up our home and all of that, and we live and and are trying to make a full time of traveling and doing the shows and so on and so forth. So at the time, we had a home in this small community in Alabama. Uh, I had two girlfriends. One of them was Jacqueline, the gal that was taken with Chad and I in New Orleans off that corner. This would have been Mm -hmm. in about 2006 that this happened to us. She flew in from, I, I think she lived in North Carolina at the time, and then another girlfriend, Allison, she flew in from New York City to celebrate my birthday. This was, like I said, 2006. A lot to the story, but if I can kind of round that off, Jacqueline went to sleep uh, downstairs. We had we had a duplex, a split-level duplex. Uh, for the most part, the upstairs house was being renovated, so it was we were all pretty much in the downstairs house that led out into the backyard. Jacqueline had come in. uh, We'd been out all day on the lake 
celebrating, partying, my birthday, so on and so forth. By this time now, Chad doesn't drink alcohol at all any longer. So Chad hasn't had anything to drink. He's just exhausted with putting up with girls on a boat all day long out on the lake. So he's exhausted. At the time, we still had the Great Dane and the Roddy Dope. They've both since passed on since then. But they're still alive. They had beds that sat right outside our bedroom door. Now we got Jacqueline. She's had, you know, a lot of fun in the sun that day. So she comes in and she just wants to lay down on the couch. She lays down on the couch and goes to sleep right away. That leaves Allison and I, and it's probably around 11-ish at night. And we've been celebrating all day long, but we're still very sober. I don't want any misunderstanding on that. Allison and I are sober. We drank some, but we knew what was we, happening. We went out and had a big dinner. And... Right. Mm-hmm. So Allison, Allison and I decided this is so out of character. We've never done it before or since. But on that night, we decided, let's go up on the upstairs deck and stargaze. We'd never even talked like that before. So that's just so bizarre. So we go upstairs, go out on the deck, and I'm telling you before we could get our chairs placed, it first happened to Allison. Allison, before she could even get her chair sat down on the deck positioned, up in the sky is a dancing star. Now, when I say a dancing star, it's not a star. This star, it's not a star, zigzags instantly, like almost instantly. She let out a glee, you know, like a yelp, scream, glee, mm-hmm. like a little kid, and I caught it peripherally. By the time I turned around to get my chair placed, it happened to me. So here her and I both have almost instantaneous UFOs, there's no other way to describe it, that appeared like stars dancing, zigzagging on the sky. Again, so out of character. We look at each other and say, well, that was fun. Let's go to bed now. That's just crazy. I mean, to me, that even... I understand it, though. I know how bizarre I sound, but that's just what we did. So we decided rather than come back down through the house, we'd come down the stairs into the backyard. I had... Uh, glass French doors in the downstairs house that led out into the backyard. We were going to come down through the yard in through those glass French doors where Jacqueline was sleeping only a few feet away on that couch. By the time we got downstairs of the deck and across the backyard, we had small woods uh, behind our fence. Uh, very small, but they was, it was still a wooded area, no houses back there. By the time we got fairly close to those French doors, this is the only way I know how to describe it. I've never heard anybody else have an account like this. I can't find anybody else, nor can I find anyone who believes me. Alice and I experienced was so terrifying. I mean, beyond terrifying. We heard what sounded like so many, that you couldn't count them, Sasquatch screams, yells, hollers, coming at us from those woods. It was as if I could count, I could hear every one of the sounds individually in my head, but again, I'm telling you a number that I can't begin to describe. 
it felt like hundreds, thousands, millions of these. And it was so terrifying because it was so loud that I knew that the whole town had to be hearing this. As this sound started up out of those woods, it was like an invisible wave of sound was rolling up on us. Now, we could see nothing, nothing. But the sound was so powerful and terrifying. When we got to those French doors, Allison was the first one to the doorknob. I saw shock. I saw such terror in her face that she wasn't even going to open the door. She was about to bolt through those glass doors. That something moved through me. And what I mean by that, it was my voice. I have memory of this, but these were not my words. I was, I, I commanded her in somebody else's words. To, and what the words were, as I looked at her, knowing she was about to go through these glass doors, something told me to say to her in the most commanding voice, you will stand in it. Now, that doesn't sound very profound as it just came out of my mouth, but in the experience, something truly profound was happening because it was powerful enough to stop her from bolting through the doors. At that very moment, that sound of that invisible wave came up on top of us. Now, this was palatable. This was moving through our body. That at that very moment, I was dead. Nobody could survive what we were experiencing. So in the moment that my consciousness said, you're dead, it was as if there was an invisible hand above my head, turned off an invisible switch, and it all just stopped. Like it never happened. Jacqueline never budged. My dogs acted like they were knocked out. And Chad was totally asleep through the whole thing. And he was only 20 or 30 feet away from where this was taking place, right outside our bedroom window. And nobody but Allison and I knew that this had happened to us. It was as if we'd gotten relief. We got inside the house, we held each other, shaking from inside out, and then just went to bed. And to the best of my memory, instantly went to sleep. That's just unbelievable. I can't sleep. I'm an insomniac now. Mm -hmm. But it's as if I just instantly went to sleep. Not long after this, I'm taken out of my bed. This was sometime later of that night. This is another experience. Chad's left in bed asleep. I go to bed with him. We say goodnight. We go to sleep. And the next thing I know, I'm now standing out in my backyard. I'm awake. I'm conscious. I'm very alert. So all of a sudden, I'm in my backyard. Now, I've never been a sleepwalker in my life. There's no history of that in my life. When I first am aware that I'm now standing in my backyard 
around those glass doors, there's something small, probably two, three feet high, that's right to the left of me. But by the time I start to look down to get focused on this, what I think is a being, it almost felt like Cousin It from that old show. Mm-hmm. I, before, before I can get my attention really focused on this, all of a sudden a female voice is speaking to me out of the sky, above me and to the left of me. My head instantly goes back up and back where, you know, I'm extended with my vision as far as I can extend it out into the sky. She's speaking in the most beautiful melodic voice again, and I'm falling into this voice. I have no idea what she was saying to me because I was so happy to hear her. I didn't even care. But then within that same, just almost that moment, of me just getting lost in her voice to the right and above me is a male voice, and it sounds like an angry father. And I go from being very happy, childlike, blissful, to, again, instantly terrified. I could feel my knees shaking, knocking. And this male voice was booming at me, out of the sky, again, like it's so loud, everybody in the whole world should be hearing this. And what he said to me was extremely audible, and it was short, sweet, and very direct, in the meanest voice. Again, I'm called by name, and he said, Alta, don't bother being afraid, but in the harshest, meanest voice. And in that that moment that he said that to me, there was a huge flash of light in my left wrist. And it was like my wrist exploded in light. And the next thing I know, I'm waking up in bed the next morning. I wake Chad up and I tell him, I have another object in my wrist. I, in fact, do have another what other people are calling implant in my Mm -hmm. wrist. Now, this is just a little bit of the craziness that was happening to us on that property. Did you guys uh, start a book or anything? I I think that, are are you working on a a project like that? Thank you so much for asking. I finally, just this year, did my very best to write our 23 years of high strangeness. But because Chad and I, neither one of us know how to write, we need help. So I have a friend in New York City who has offered to try to help us, but to do the book properly, to add the photos and so on and so forth, there's quite a bit of a price tag attached to it that we cannot afford. So it's all been put on hold, but that is our highest desire is to get this finally in book form. Um, what's the price tag? Five to eight thousand. Yeah, I've heard. Somebody said I just read another number two thousand just for editing, and it's uh, so you need a writer. So uh, hmm, 
We'll just put it out there, right. and you know it'll it'll happen. And I think that you have an incredible story. It's been fascinating listening to you, and we had to go over just to get even a little more of your story in because I was wanting to hear about all the the strange thing that you you moved near where the Columbine High School massacre had occurred, and then uh, you know on and on and on and. Uh, I would love to have you guys back again at a future show. And um, what's your what's your events coming up? Why don't you tell everybody that, where, where you're going be, next? Thank you again. That would be such an honor, Miss McCain. Such an honor for yes. us. So, um, it's been wonderful talking thank to you guys. Thank you so much for that. Uh, as far as what's coming up for us, I'll have Chad share our schedule with you real quick. Um, okay. Well, a lot of, a, a lot of this I, I post on our unique Gravit page, but uh, uh, we're going to do a little show here uh, this weekend cool. in Point Pleasant. Uh, we're going to do um, what they call Fright Night Film Festival. This was in Louisville, Kentucky, and then we do um, Universal Light. Uh, or, I'm sorry, Universal Life. Um, uh, Expo in Columbus, and then Victory of Light in uh, Cincinnati, Ohio. We're basically going to travel until the end of October, and then return back to Alabama. The end of October, okay. and then and then we'll be stationary in Alabama for you know for until probably spring, and then we'll start our travels again. So we're we're we'll be in a sedentary position for about seven or eight months. Well, it just sounds like an exciting life and that you're really just giving it your all and you're going for it. And what could be better that you've got your a partner on crime there with you? And that's really just a wonderful thing to me. And uh, how fascinating. And uh, I've loved your story and I, I just had to hear more and more. And uh, this all will be available in archives for everybody to listen to you for your friends. And you can get readings by Alta uh, going to www.readings, R-E-A-D-I-N-G-S-W-I-T-H, with Alta, A-L-T-A dot com. And that's where you read her for, get to her for readings. And um, do you do over-the-phone readings or anything like that? Sure, absolutely. Um, thank you so much for that. I generally don't talk very much about that in these interviews, but I will mention since you've been kind enough to do so, I am the only reader that was selected to be put in a book about New Orleans by a woman that was a writer with a journalist with the Washington Post. So, you know, a little bit of credibility, if you will, to the abilities that I'm born with. And again, I thank you so much for mentioning that. You're welcome. This just sounds wonderful. I was very drawn to you guys, and um, I appreciate your work. And you have the lovely work, that, that those shawls and everything. Why don't you tell everybody about that? Is that part? That's part of the things that you sell. They are very beautiful and creative. Can you tell us about them a little thank, bit? Yeah, thank you again so much because that's really where, you know, what I do as far as the readings I'm born with and certainly never asked for any of that. But, you know, and, and grateful now, but the shawls became part of our existence. We are the only ones in the world that are offering these shawls as well. We'd like to think of these as one of a kind, 
they came about, uh, they are part of the Native American traditions, part of the women's regalia, if you will. I'm a traditional dancer. With all the mystery I have in my life, my mother made sure that I knew my bloodline and that I uh, had regalia for the most part all my life. Uh, passed on my 40th birthday to the minute I'm born. I've had a very strange life, and she raised me as an only, you know, she was my only family besides Chad. So in my grief, because I was grieving unbelievably when she passed, essentially it's as if she came back to give me permission to start creating the shawls. And the indication was there's more to this, but the short story is she made it very clear to me that the shawls would save my life that I was to devote my my pain and sorrow into, you know, all the energy of creating the shawls. So they started off as something just to keep me occupied and to filter my pain. As they And she also indicated to me that they would become my best friends. My mother raised me to understand that the shawls are like wearing a hug. And so, mm-hmm. as you've heard in our story, hugs are very important to us. So once... I started doing this, people started taking note of the shawls, and we saw that it was changing people and making people very happy. So Chad and I just made the decision to open it up and to customize them to people's likes and designs. And the fact that I'm mixed, not all full-blooded Indian, but have other bloodlines involved, we just decided to open it up internationally. I'd like to mention that there was one shawl that was commissioned by us several years ago when we first started offering these to the world. It was commissioned by a East Indian uh, woman to take and present to uh, the hugging saint of India known as Ama. Yes. So I think she's Amma, coming to LA very soon. Wonderful. She, uh, she received as a gift a shawl that, that we hand, I hand-painted uh, Kachinas all around it, uh, never expecting for her to understand anything about Kachinas. And when it was presented to her, uh, my understanding was she was beside herself because the story goes that she had gone to Santa Fe or had been brought to Santa Fe for a big conference. And while she was in her room one night, the Kachinas started appearing to her to receive blessings from her. And so this was years prior to her receiving this shawl with Kachinas on them. So again, you know, the, the shawls have managed to become international. And and again, we just thank you so much for, for seeing us and seeing them. Yes, well, just, I just wanted to say... Uh, Thank you so much, uh, Chad and Alta Dillard, for uh, being with us on the Paranormal and the Sacred. And you're welcome to come back on the show, and we consider you a friend of the Paranormal and the Sacred. And thank you so much for uh, your wonderful talk with us tonight. We really, really appreciate you. As we feel towards you, and, and again, so honored, anytime, you just let us know anytime. And thank we'll you to all the uh, listeners that have been interested in us. Yeah, thank yes, you very thank much. You so much. Thank you both. Get a good night's sleep, and God bless you, and happy trails. And take care. And to you. Okay, thank good you. Night. Good night. Good night. Well, it was wonderful meeting them and speaking with them and getting to know 
uh, chatting also, Dillard, a wonderful couple with so much to share with us. And we, we do hope they work on their book project and so we can have this out released for the world. And uh, this uh, tonight's show will be available in archives. Uh, it takes a few minutes when after it's done, and uh, then you'll have the whole show in its entirety. Uh, anyway, next Friday... Paul Wesley, activist, universalist, and alien abduction survivor, will be our guest speaker. And be sure to come with us this Sunday uh, on our Sacred Sunday. We're having a very good showing, and uh, it's every Sunday, 11 a.m. Uh, 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 Pacific Standard Time. And, uh, you know, we're just simply just reading the Bible straight through, and uh, the, it's gotten quite a following. And it's just a simple show, but if you want to get... Uh, Remind yourself that Sundays are sacred. Just please join us, 11 a.m. every Sunday morning. And I want to let you know that I really appreciate you being with us tonight and listening to the paranormal and the sacred as we're here every Friday, 6 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. And God bless. Take care. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.